In his book, A Quest for More, author Paul Tripp says, We simply were not constructed to live only for ourselves. We were placed on earth to be part of something bigger than the narrow borders of our own survival and our own little definition of happiness. The desire resides in each of us, and it's called transcendence. To transcend is to be part of something greater. We were created to be part of something so big, so glorious, so far beyond the ordinary, that it would totally change the way we approach every ordinary thing in our lives. And in all of sin's blindness, brokenness, and rebellion, that desire to transcend has now been crushed. Being a fan in the stands with 65,000 other fans at the Super Bowl, with everyone screaming at the top of their lungs as the kicker launches that last-second field goal, gives us a feeling of transcendence. You hear it in the voice of the fan who says, It's our year. Our time has come. We're going to win this one. He sounds like he's a paid member of the team, yet he's not. The we language is transcendence. He's become part of something greater than his mundane workaday world. His connection to his local team has helped him, if just for a moment, to transcend the small boundaries of his average guy world. The local worker in the presidential campaign has much the same experience. No, he will probably never meet the candidate face to face. And yes, he's only running folding machines and stuffing boxes full of literature. But he's a part of something transcendent. He's been told that this campaign could forever change the face of American politics. His campaign involvement has helped him escape the little world of his college life to become an integral part of something bigger. If only for a moment, he has transcended. The mountain climber facing the dizzying heights, the unforgiving inclines, and the biting wind has touched a bit of transcendence. He's about to join a small society of people who have escaped the everyday concerns and demands of life to accomplish something great. And he stands on that oxygen-poor summit, and he has transcended, if for just one day. The mountain isn't the only summit he has ascended. The marcher in the protest, the career soldier in the combat unit, and the little boy who's pretending he's the king of the world experience the same rush. It's that feeling of being part of something significant, of your place and your part mattering. For a moment in your life, you're bigger than your, than your life. The bigger thing yanks you out of bed in the morning, and sometimes the excitement of it makes it hard to sleep. It makes all the little things that you've had to do every day seem more satisfying and more important because they're now connected to something more than self-survival. You've experienced a bit of transcendence. The desire for transcendence is in all of us because God placed it there. He constructed us to live for more than ourselves. He designed us to want meaning, purpose, and consequence. You and I were created for more than filling up our schedules with the self-satisfying pursuits of personal pleasure. We were meant to do more than make sure that all of our needs are fulfilled and all our desires satisfied. We were never meant to be self-focused little kings ruling minuscule little kingdoms with a population of one. 
Sure, it's right for you to care about your health, your job, your house, your investments, your family, and your friends. It'd be irresponsible to act as if none of those things mattered. Yet it is a functional human tragedy to live only for those things. It's a fundamental denial of your humanity to narrow the size of your life to the size of your own existence. Because you were created to be above and to be an above and more being, you were made to be transcendent. So what is the big vision that you're working toward? What's the big dream that you're investing in? What's your definition of the good life? When will you know that you've been successful? If you had it all, what would all look like? I'm afraid there are many people of faith who attend church each week, give regularly to God's work, know their Bible pretty well, and don't live overtly evil lives, but they have settled for below and less when they were created for above and more. And the mistake that they have made is that they have shrunk their Christianity to the size of their own lives. You see, friends, We were made for more than all of that. Every child of God, every Christian, has been called to be an active, an active participant in a mission, the consequences of which last for eternity. And you're supposed to be a part of that, and I'm supposed to be an active part of that. I stress the word active because Christianity, church that displays that Christianity, is, as I say in the title of today's message, a team sport. We're continuing it from last week. So as we saw last week and we'll see again today, there is to be no passivity in the pursuit of that mission. Throughout the month of January... We're in a mini-series to start the new year that seeks to call our church to not only what we were made for as people, as humanity, but what we've been remade to be as the people of God. Sure, I'll take one. Thanks. Thank you, John. Bottle of water. So was I, was I coughing? Was I, uh... No, Larry looked like Larry was prophesying that I was going to cough? Oh, okay. All right. Well, very good. Thanks, man. Excuse me. Any other prophecies you want to share with the uh, congregation? Thank you. Now, three weeks ago, we saw that the Bible commends planning and administration of our plans in God's church in order for us to carry out his mission. And I read at that time our church's 10-year plan which has seven years to go. And I noted that in order to accomplish these ambitious but God-honoring plans, it's going to require all of God's people contributing their gifts and abilities to it. Two weeks ago, Pastor Larry did an excellent job of reminding us of our church's mission statement and how that should shape our lives as we strive together to move the Lord's work forward. In two weeks, we're going to resume our series in the book of Revelation So for those of you that are guests today, I beg your indulgence as I speak this morning primarily to our members, as I urge those who are regular attenders to become those members. I'll be doing that a bit. Now, last week we saw that very need for committing ourselves to one another in membership. 
There's an outline inserted in your program as we have each week. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take a look at that. You'll notice the first portion of that outline is in gray because that's what we covered last week. And we saw last week, first of all, as you see there, the church is comprised of God's people. That is, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be a member of and a participant in God's church. Now, because that notion has fallen on hard times, in keeping with the individualistic mindset of our culture, I spent time last week showing from the Bible the importance of membership. And we saw, as you see in the outline as well, that the function of membership is biblical. That is, the fact of membership, the necessity of membership is taught in the Bible, and it is so and taught in a number of ways. I spent last week a good deal of time showing that from Scripture, that's the case, but unfortunately, many of you did not hear it because attendance was down by a good 30% due to weather. So if you were not here last week, I strongly encourage you to listen to that message at our website. One author summarized all that we presented last week by saying this. In the New Testament, there's no such person as a Christian who is not a church member. There, it, there was no spiritual drifting in the Bible. But I went on to acknowledge that some might rightly ask, okay, but why isn't membership more explicit in the Bible? Why isn't there some place in Scripture that says, verily, they ask for a raise of hands to indicate their intention to join, or behold, As many as desired membership filled out an application and met with the elders to confirm their eligibility. You don't find anything like that. That's because even even though the function of membership is thoroughly biblical, the form of membership, as I say in the outline, is extra biblical. As one surveys the New Testament, he finds it's filled with directives regarding the functions that God's people and his church are to perform Things like membership and discipline and evangelizing and baptizing and so forth. But the New Testament is short on specifics regarding the forms that are necessary to carry those out. So we have to come up with forms, that is ways, methods, to carry out what the Bible requires. And that's true for membership as well. The ways we do something may often be extra biblical, that is outside the Bible, but they can never be unbiblical which is contrary to the Bible. And so this morning, as last week, we had dis- and every week, we had displayed on the screen words for our singing. And many churches use printed books, I said last week, for that. The early church didn't use hymn books, obviously didn't use projectors. They're extra biblical, they're outside the Bible, but they're not unbiblical because they're consistent with what the Bible requires, namely that we gather together in worship and as part of that we sing. With regard to membership, unfortunately, we get caught up too much in how we join rather than the fact that we are to join. And since we focus on how and we say, I don't see that in the Bible, then the whole thing we deem to be unnecessary. Now, why doesn't, I asked last week, the Bible describe in detail how people became members of the church? And the answer is very simple. There was only one way to do it back then, and that was by baptism. But we have two factors that are present in our day that did not exist in the first century and that require then that we have some method in addition to baptism for determining membership. Those factors are very quickly multiplication and mobility. By multiplication, I mean multiplication of churches. 
the increase of individual churches in a given geographic area. In the time of the New Testament, there was most often only one church in a city. And so there was no need to identify with a specific church since it was the only game in town, as it were. Upon baptism, one became a member of that church, which was the church. In addition, even if in a given locality in the first century there was more than one church, they lacked the second issue, and that is mobility did not allow them to go from one to another. And so the practice of moving, transferring from one church to another was unknown in the first century. So in New Testament times, there was no such thing as an unchurched Christian. When one was baptized, and that means immersed in water, after making a definite decision to follow Christ, not infant baptism, which was never practiced in the New Testament. At baptism, he or she is united with a particular church in his or her area. The modern practice of church membership is therefore nothing more, now hear this, than commitment to serve in a particular local church. Membership is, as I said last week, but a synonym for commitment to a local church. Now in our case, in our church, we've chosen a form, a way then to do this, to carry out this thing that the Bible necessitates, requires. We have a simple one-page application. And the person who fills that out then meets briefly with some from our leadership team and they're voted on at the end of the worship service. We'll have a couple of families on whom we'll be voting at the end of today's worship service who've done that already. Now, the Bible doesn't describe that form. It doesn't say have a one-page application. So we often assume it's not necessary. It is true that the ways, the forms that we use for membership are extra-biblical. That is, they're outside the Bible, but they're required to fulfill what the Bible does say about the necessity of membership. You've got to have some way. If you want to come to me and say, hey, I object to filling out a one-page application. All right, give me another method. Just make it known that you want to be a member of the church. You want to commit to this church. And that we will then go through the steps necessary of ensuring that a, that a credible testimony of salvation exists, that you've been baptized. If not, we'll baptize you and go from there. I'm not hung up on the one-page application. It's just a way to do it. You shouldn't get hung up on it either. But we have that one-page application inserted in your program today. Did you all see that when you opened it up? And we did that so that it's right there in front of you. Because what often happens is people make determinations, yes, I'm going to do this, and then by the end of the service, they forgot what it was they determined they were going to do. So there it is. Everybody see it? The single-page application. If you've never filled that out, you should fill that out today and turn it in today. That would be a good thing. If you've been here long enough to check us out, if you've been here six months, if you've been here certainly a year, if you haven't, you're still checking us out, please take the necessary time to do that. But there it is. Fill it out. Now, do me a favor. Don't fill it out right now. Pastor Rich is going to be speaking second hour. Feel free to fill it out then, <laughs> but not now. So we saw last week that the church is comprised of God's people. And today, in your outline, 
We're going to see, secondly, the church is concerned with God's value. The church is concerned with God's value. Let's pray now and ask God to help us, okay? Father, we're here to consider these important matters for your church, the beginning of a new year that you've given us. Father, we want to move forward for you, for your glory, for your cause. We need one another to do that. In order for that to happen, we need to obey what your word says about commitment to the body of Christ that is your church. So help each of us to be willing to do that. Lord, I pray that some put aside uh, false notions that perhaps they've had for many years about uh, membership being unnecessary or man-made. I pray that in these last couple of weeks we've made clear that such is not the case. The forms are different, but the fact remains that you require us to unite together and to use what you have given us to further your cause. And at the beginning of this year, we want to be reminded of that. We want to join together so that we can move together, as it were, as one, as one man for your mission. So grant us open hearts and attentive minds as we look further at the reasons that we should do this and the things that, it, that we need to do as a result of what your word tells us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The church is concerned with God's value. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 15, Paul, who wrote it, says to Timothy, his protege in ministry, that I have written these things to you so that you will know how people are to conduct themselves in, notice, God's household. God's household is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The fact that we are the church of the living God should be ample motivation for us to obey and serve him. I'll repeat. The fact that we are the church of the living God should be ample motivation for us to obey and to serve him. Now, it says in the translation most of you have in front of you, we use the NIV, most of us here, New International Version, it says, the church, the church of the living God. But in Greek, the language in which your New Testament was originally written, the word the is not there. It's just God's household, church of the living God. One commentator says this phrase, about this phrase, church of the living God, this passage defines the assembly of believers as the church of the living God or the living God's church. The absence of the definite article the with the word church in the original Greek stresses the character of the church. The church by its very nature belongs to the living God. The Bible says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 that the church of God was truly his because he had, quote, purchased it with his own blood. In Ephesians 1.14, the church is called, quote, God's own possession to the praise of his glory. It's the church in the city of Ephesus where Timothy is pastor that first received this designation as church of the living God. And it was especially apropos for Ephesus as the church there was the island of light in a dark sea of pagan worship. And note this, crucial to behaving properly 
is the knowledge that the assembly of saints is the living God's church in the world of dead idols. And that it is mandated and empowered for a divine mission and a divine message. So there's Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And he's being reminded of what the church that he oversees is the living God's church. And he gets to be a part of it. And everybody gets to be a part of it. And that ought to be ample motivation for us to obey and serve God. Knowing who we are. And remembering whose we are should compel us to band together to carry out the work that the Lord has given us. That is, knowing that we have the special and privileged position of being God's people in his church should motivate us to carry out his will and his work. He is worth it. Now, whenever I read our church's 10-year plan to the congregation, as I did a few weeks ago, and we do at the beginning of each year, we have copies of that at the Welcome Center desk out in the lobby. I encourage you to pick one up. Every time I do that, I'm always pleased at how enthused people are about it. But friends, you know what should motivate us more than our vision for the future is a vision of God now. We serve him first and foremost because he's worth it. We value him such that we give ourselves to what's important to him and what's important to him becomes important to us. Therefore, when we engage in God's church together as part of the mission he has given us, it's an act of worship as we serve the Lord together and seek to advance His mission together. It's an act of worship, or as the old English word from which we get our English word worship, worth-ship. It's an act by which we show the worth of God. We show the value that He has to us. So we ask not first, how jazzed are you about CBC's 10-year plan? But rather, what is God worth And I say in the outline, he's worth our talent. You say, I'm off the hook here because I don't have any talent. (laughs) But see, that's not true for any Christian. It's not true for any Christian that you you bring nothing to the table. Every one of us brings something to the table. The Bible says so. 1 Corinthians 12 that talks about the gifting, the various giftings within the body of Christ. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The Spirit distributes to each one just as he determines. Everyone is gifted by God in order to participate in the mission that the Lord has given to us. Now, when I say in the outline three times in these three subpoints, the word our... Our talent here. It's not really the case that it's our time or anything else is ours for that matter. In fact, it's God's, and we manage all that we've been entrusted with for Him and His purposes. If you were here two weeks ago, Pastor Larry gave an excellent illustration of if you had a financial manager, or if you, yes, a financial manager, and you gave your money to him to manage for you 
And then maybe after a year or five years, you go and you say, what have you done with my money? And he sits down and shows you a picture of all the things that he bought for himself. That's not the kind of person that's, that's managing your affairs. They're managing their own affairs for their own benefit. The Bible uses the word steward to describe Christians. A steward is a manager of someone else's stuff. And we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not for determining our salvation, but determining, giving an account for what we did with what God gave. And so one of those things that we show God's worth with is the use of what he has given in the form of our talent. Now, many of us have heard the sad sad statistic that in most churches, it's 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I've given the illustration in the past of the work of the church being like a football game where there are 11 men on a field who desperately need rest. They're being watched by 50,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise. And the modern evangelical church can become like that. It becomes characterized by professionalism and passivity. Professionalism on the part of those who are in so-called full-time ministry and passivity on the part of the so-called laity, everybody else. Yet the Bible is clear that ministry is the responsibility of every believer with each one playing his or her part. So church is indeed a team sport. And the scriptures teach the following principles that are foundational to every person all the time ministry. The first is this, that all members are ministers. All of God's people are ministers. The word minister means servant. My mom, who is now with the Lord, but my mom used to love to introduce me to people and say, this is my son, he's a minister. And she would get this big smile on her face. She was just so proud that her son was a minister. And she came from a background down south where the preacher was called the minister. But in some ways that's unfortunate because it obscures the fact that all of us are servants. All of us are ministers. The difference is simply in the form that that ministry takes. I have a role to play for sure, but each of us has a role to play. And so the Bible says, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The talents, the abilities, the giftings that God has bestowed upon each of us are varied for sure. They can fall roughly into two categories as First Peter 4 says, each one should use whatever gift he is to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. And then Peter goes on in the next verse to say, if one has a speaking gift, then he should use it as unto the Lord. If he has a serving gift, he should do that. He gives these two broad categories of speaking and serving. One reason that many people don't get involved actively themselves in serving the Lord is because they think the only way to serve the Lord is to get up in front of people and teach a Sunday school class or something like that. And they say, I don't have the speaking gift. Guess what? Most people, 90% of the people don't have speaking gifts. Most people fit into that latter category, serving gifts. The good news is this. There are way more things to do in God's work in service than there are in speaking. And that's a good thing because there are more people who are servants than speakers. 
So all members are ministers. And secondly, each member minister is uniquely designed by God. That chapter in 1 Corinthians 12 that talks about the gifts that God gives to his people for the work of the church says this, the body is not made up of one part, but many. God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. But notice in the middle of that, every one of them is just as he wanted them to be. You are in this church with giftings and abilities just as God intends them to be. God's not calling you to be someone else. God's not calling you to do someone else's ministry. God is calling you to use what he's given you just as he wanted you to be for his work. Ephesians 2 says this, we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's handiwork, it says. Some translations translate that word handiwork as God's craftsmanship. Some as God's work of art. Some as God's masterpiece. Handiwork, craftsmanship, work of art, masterpiece. Why? Why do they do that? Because the Greek word behind that is the word poema. We get poem from it. The idea is that God has woven you together to become who you are. You're a tapestry. You're God's work. And now God has done that work in order for you to use what he's done in you, for him to do his work through you. So how are we as God's congregation showing God's value, showing his worth, How are we worshiping him with what he's given? At the beginning of the year, it's good for us to step back and look at that. And so I asked Pastor Larry, who is the custodian of our database, and he knows who does what in our church, and he ran a report on how many people are actively involved in the work of the Lord at our church. He just gave me a percentage, not names, so I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to you. Me. 62% of our congregation is actively serving. 62. Now, that's actually a very good percentage compared to just about every church I know. And I know a lot of churches and I know a lot of pastors. And many of them would just give the right arm to have 60 some percent of the people actively serving in the church. So I thank God for that. And I thank God for those who comprise that 62%. It used to be at our church some years ago, 80%. So why has it gone down over the years to 62? I don't know for sure. I think I have a decent idea. One reason is because we moved into this building. And we expanded this auditorium. And it gave us the opportunity to fit more people in. And we're very thankful for that. That was part of our vision for the future. And God's allowed us to do that. And we have still further things we want to do in the future. So it's been wonderful for us to be able to minister to more people and have a facility, a ministry center to be able to do that. But one of the things that's lost in that is that back in the day when 
we for 12 years were renting facilities and somebody walked into our church. What they walked into was people stacking chairs, setting up, taking down chairs. And anybody who would say, yeah, I want to be part of that. That's somebody generally with a mindset that says, I want to roll up my sleeves and serve. Just goes with the turf. When you move into a building, one of the downsides is it looks like you pretty much got it covered. They don't really need, they don't really need my help. And so it begins to slow down in terms of enthusiasm that people have and seeing the necessity for getting involved in the Lord's work. So I understand that, but it's something that we want to combat. The truth is 100% of God's people should be actively involved in God's work. Now let me quickly add that there. every time I go through stuff like this, I have very sensitive souls in the congregation who feel guilty and they say, uh, I wish I could do something, but you know, I've just gotten out of the hospital and I've got a year-long recovery and all of that. And pastor says I should be actively involved in the Lord's work, otherwise I'm a crumb. And, and let me assure you, uh, I'm not counting you, okay? So when I say 100%, I'm perfectly willing to modify that to 99%, to 95%. There, there are legitimate reasons that somebody can't do what they might like to do. You might even be in a phase of life for a temporary period of time where you can't do what you used to do. That's true as well. And so understanding all of that, then, we still have 38% of our people representing 100, 100 members of our church who are not actively involved in the Lord's work. We want to see that change. We want to tell you about it and we want to encourage you to use what God has given you to be actively involved in his mission. Now, service, ministry, is this. It is where ability and opportunity meet. Ability and opportunity. You see, if you've got a diagnosis, if you're sick, there are just limitations on what you're going to be able to do, so you don't have the ability to do the things you would like to do. So then what you can do is be a part of our prayer team and commit to praying every day for the things that are on our church's prayer list. And you will be doing a vital ministry for us. And thank you for that. You can't serve outside of something like that because you don't have the ability to do that. It's where ability and opportunity meet. Sometimes you might have the ability to do something, but there's no opportunity for that particular thing that you like to do, that you have a passion for to be done. In which case, you should use your abilities in another area until or unless that comes open for you. Service is where the two of those things meet, ability and opportunity. And listen, dear friends, there's enough for every member of our church to actively and productively do in God's work. It's amazing how many things go on behind the scenes here that you don't see. When you came in today, the parking lot was plowed. That was plowed by volunteers from our church. The sidewalks were shoveled and salt was down. That was all done by volunteers coming out. It's pretty cold out there. When I pulled in at about 845, There are guys out there with Eskimo suits on, throwing salt down, and I'm thanking God for them. There are people watching our children 
right now so that we can share the truth together. There are people who clean the building during the week. There are people who help set up and and tear down things. There are people who volunteer to come early so that they can open the doors for you and greet you. Go out in the rain with with an umbrella to help you get in dry when it's raining. There's no limit to the number of things that people can do. Some of them very simple but very important. So, in addition to have the membership application inserted in your program, among the other things that are inserted in there is a passions and skills survey. You all see that? So I'd encourage you to take a look at that, passions and skills survey. You can fill that out very easily. If you've filled one of these out in the past, but you're not sure if you've turned it in or if you haven't heard back from us, I'm sorry, and I mean that. But if you have filled one out and you have never heard from us to say, how can we fit you into ministry, then I encourage you to take a few minutes later to fill that out. Turn it in at the Welcome Center desk in the lobby, and we will get with you about an area of service for you. So the church is concerned with God's value, and God is worth our talent. Second, He is worth our treasure. Whose treasure? I say here our treasure, but it's God's. And he's given it to us to manage. The Bible says this, Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, how does someone decide what this verse says in your heart, what it is to give, since the New Testament does not provide a required percentage or amount? Well, let me give some statistics first about our church's giving over this past year. And then I'll offer some simple suggestions. These statistics come from the finance team. I and our other pastors do not have access to see who gives what at our church. All I see are numbers with no names attached. That's been the case for over 18 years. It'll always be the case. So as I talk about this, again, I'm not talking about you because I don't know who gives. I only know what one person in the church gives, actually two people, my wife and, and myself. That's it. The average giving per family in our church throughout 2019 was $2,803.66. Call it $2,800 per family for the year. So that means if you have two people working in the home, the two of them together gave $2,800. If you have a single member of the church, the average is $2,800. Now, we'll see whether that's good or not in in a bit. Whether it's good, you have to have something to compare it to, some benchmark. But here's something that's more telling than the average of 2,800. The median giving. Now, do you all know what median is versus average? See, averages can be skewed. uh, Because if someone, say, gives $100,000, gave $100,000 last year, then that's going to make the average higher. The rest of us didn't have to give a whole lot, 
in order to achieve that 2800 because somebody's given 100000 and somebody else has given 50000 I'm not saying anybody did either of those. But it skews the average. What median does is it says, what's the number right in the middle? If you have 163 um, giving units in your church, as we do, if you have 163 giving units, then you find the one, you've got numbers, 163 of them, and what's the number right in the middle? So that you have the same number above and you have the same number below. That's a more accurate number. And that number is 1429. 1,429. About half of the average. This means that the average is skewed because some give large amounts and apparently many are giving very small amounts. Now, we did this analysis for the first time last year, and when I gave the number of people who give nothing to the church, there was an audible gasp in the congregation. That number of those giving units, that is families or single adult members, who gave less than $1,000 in 2019 was just under half of the congregation. 48%. 48% of our congregation families gave less than $1,000. That means that in order to have that average of 2800 that other half has to be giving more, a lot more. Now that's actually, that 48% is actually a slight improvement over last year, believe it or not. Now of the 48% who gave less than $1,000, 31% gave less than $100 for the year. And a whopping 29% gave nothing. All right. That's bad. That's not where we want to be. And it's not where we can be if we're going to come close to doing the things that we've laid out in our church's 10-year plan. So together, we're going to have to change that. We saw that last year when we gave these statistics for the first time. They've improved slightly. We offered Financial Peace University this fall as part of a way to help folks get their personal finances together so that they can participate more robustly. But over time, and it's going to take time, we together are going to need to address this. Now, why is this the case? Why do we have 48% of our family units giving less than a thousand, twenty nine percent giving less than or giving nothing at all. Why is that? I had one pastor friend tell me that when this kind of thing happens, it's for one of three reasons, or maybe a combination. It's either ignorance or discouragement or rebellion. I think those are probably accurate categories. Ignorance, discouragement, rebellion. Rebellion just means yeah, I know I'm supposed to give, and I know he's worth it, but I don't care. I'm just out and out sinning. That's the rebellion piece. Discouragement would be that I'm discouraged about the direction of the, the church, and I'm withholding my money. This happens in churches until the church gets its act together. That would be wrong, but it's what happens sometimes. I don't think either of those are 
the, the major reason that this is happening in our church. I think the, by far, the major reason this is happening is ignorance. And I take the blame for that. Because over the years, I have not talked about this much at all. So people come into our church who have not grown up in homes like I did, where giving was just part of what we did. And that was the case for some of you. And so some of you came to the church with that mentality. We have many people in our church who, thank God, have come to the Lord through the ministry of our church. They're first-generation Christians. They don't know anything about that. And so if I don't tell them about it, they're going to remain ignorant of that. This came crashing home to me several years ago as I gave a statistic at our parent church many years ago. It was a statistic that I heard at a seminar, and the guy said, you know, the average giving per family, per year, across the board, whatever denomination, is $1,000 per year. That's the average giving. Average. Now, our average is 2800 so we're above that. So that's good. But it's $1,000 per person per year. That's a very low number, $1,000 per, not per person, um, yeah, per person per year. So it's a, it's a low number, uh, all things considered. And I gave that statistic. I had a brother come up to me afterwards, and he said, that can't be right. And I thought he was just thinking, that's way too low. <laughs> He's a single guy who owns his own business. And he said to me, I'm nowhere close to that. He was nowhere close to giving $1,000 for the year. And he was, he was flabbergasted that the average amount was $1,000 per year. Well, he had come to the Lord. He had, that's the only church he had ever been in. And he had no idea. He had no way to calibrate in his mind what was an appropriate amount to give. And if you don't have that, well, then you won't know. You'll be ignorant of that. And we, I, our leadership has to provide that for you. And we're going to have to do that over the next few years. Think of it this way. When you go to a restaurant and you tip at a restaurant, how would you know how much to tip at a restaurant? Now, now your giving is not tipping God, okay? <laughs> Thanks, God. You did a good job this week. Here you go. Good work. But just think about something like that. How would you know? And, and you wouldn't. We, we have to be told that. In fact, the, often when you get a receipt at a restaurant, down at the bottom it'll tell you 15% is this much, 18% is this much, 20%, right? And I trust most of you, when you go to a restaurant, in fact, I trust all of you tip, and that you tip within those ranges. And just as a quick aside, if you don't, don't let them know you're a Christian. And whatever you do, don't let them know you are a member of this church. That's really on a serious note. I mean, I've been told by waitresses over the years that the one day they hated the work the most was on Sunday. That the after-church crowd was the most demanding and they were the cheapest tippers. That's a bad testimony, brothers and sisters. So if you insist on giving no tip or a very low tip, tell them you're a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> it's a lie and a good cause, okay? But everybody's got to have it, and that has to be formed, and that's been formed in our culture. There's nothing magic about 15 or 20%, but that's the convention, and so that's what's understood, and so that's what we do. 
In the Bible, if you were to point to a percentage at all given, that percentage would be what's called a tithe, which is a tenth, 10%. It's used throughout the first part of your Bible. Now, you haven't heard me say that, I was going to say much, ever. And the reason is in the New Testament, it doesn't say that because we're not under the law. So there's no legal requirement like there was under the law in the first part of the Bible of 10%. Now, what many of us have done and our families have done is they've taken that 10% into our, out of the overflow of your heart, what you've determined in your heart to give and use that as a percentage. And that's been common in evangelical homes over the years, the home I grew up in. That was the way it was. So for my entire life, that's been the deal. And for many of you, that's been the deal. But for others of you, you know nothing about that. Now, you say, well, why should I use the 10%? I mean, if there's no percent given in the New Testament, why should I use 10%? Well, here's one reason to to think about that. If God required 10% under the law, and now in the New Testament, under the regime of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us, And you and I are given the opportunity then to determine in our heart what we're going to give to the Lord. Why would we give less than what the law required? Now, I'm never going to look at that and say who's giving 10% and who's not. I'm never going to have any. I won't even know that because I don't know what 10% is for you. So we'll never be doing that. But one of the reasons that many of us do it, and one of the reasons then, thankfully, there's an upper portion, half of our congregation, who's apparently doing that kind of thing, that helps us then meet our obligations and so on, is because we've learned that 10% standard. I'm encouraging you to strongly consider that. I'm encouraging the family units in our church to consider a 10% standard. Now, you say, hey, right now I'm one of the zeros. How am I going to get to 10%? Do it over time. So don't try to go from zero to, to 10. Go from zero to three. Go from three to five. Go from five to 10. Take a, take a three-year process. Take a two-year process. To say, I'm going to get my affairs in order so that I can significantly give. And if it's not going to be 10%, then whatever it is. And for some of us, it could be more than that. But you determine in your heart what that is, and then you do it. Notice what the Bible says about the church churches in Macedonia. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So we're going to close. And all God's people said, but we're going to finish. Joe, you were pretty quick on that amen there. That's the quickest amen you've ever given. Uh, Let me just say this, though. Friends, listen. If we don't do this over the next few years, if we don't fix this problem, let me state it another way. If we don't meet this challenge, then the things that we have laid out in our 10-year plan will not happen. And in our 10-year plan, we have great plans for the Lord's work. 
And most, if not all of you, are excited about that. Now we need to put our legs and our hands and our feet and our treasure to seeing that happen over the next few years. So we are looking to have interns that we train for the ministry. That's in our 10-year plan. But that requires money. We have staffing that we need to do. We need we have missions projects and missionaries that are in our plan that require resources for us to do those things. We have the community counseling center that is going to require funds. We have the community cares mercy ministry that is part of that that's going to require that's going to require funds. We even have in the plan an addition onto this building on the south side, and then this room becomes a dedicated fellowship hall and gymnasium. And, of course, that requires funds as well. So all of that is going to require all of us banding together to be actively involved in the Lord's work. Some of you will never be able to do this 10%. Some of you are single. Some of you are in college. You don't even have a job yet. Some of you uh, are spiritually single. You're a member of the church, you're a Christian, but you don't control the money and the checkbook. You've got an unbeliever in your house that's part of that. And so you have to take that into consideration, and they won't approve of you giving anything. If that's the case, then that's just the way it is. And I don't say these things to make you feel bad. But I am convinced that this 48% that is less than $1,000 can be drastically reduced over the next couple of years so that we can move forward together. Why will we do it? Because God has given us, we think, a God-honoring vision in our 10-year plan. But more important than that, God is worth it. The last point on your outline is he is worth our time. But we're out of time, so I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to consider these important matters. And I thank you for the understanding of your people At the beginning of a new year, as we deal with these important matters, Lord, work in us, work in our families, work in our circumstances, we ask you, so that we can each participate to the full extent that we are able, and that we are able then to move your church forward with the good plans that we believe you've given us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.